in the Reading Corner today, I'm really excited to be welcoming back author extraordinaire Steve Cole, who wears so many hats. But today, the hat that he's going to be wearing for us is to do with his writing for Barrington Stoke. And there are four novels or novellas, Tin Boy, World Burned Down, Welcome to Trashland and Stitched Up, all with the theme of using the world's resources to best effect and also protecting uh, the rights of children who are somehow embroiled in the stories around how those resources are used. And they are very popular novels with primary, but also with secondary. And although they're published for uh, Barrington Stoke, who we know produce excellent dyslexia-friendly novels, in fact, these stories can be read by anybody. And we know so many children enjoy a quick read, regardless of their reading attainment and ability. We're going to take our listeners on a bit of a journey through all four books and perhaps spend a little longer on the most recent book, Stitched Up. So first of all, welcome back, Steve. Hello, hello, hello. You might be the most interviewed person on In the Reading Corner. It's quite <laughs> possible. <laughs> We've talked well, about Doctor Who. We did. We did do that. <laughs> We've talked about humour. Always, always a good one. Makes me laugh. There's not much space for humour in these four books, is there? Not a huge amount. No, this is this is true. Um, and for someone like me, who's, I suppose, in some of my best known books, mine that humorous seem quite deeply. But like anybody, as a human being, one has to be interested in and concerned about certain things happening on the planet, um, which don't make us laugh. And I think it's only honest to have to reflect those. And really writing for Barrington Stoke was an outlet for some of that discomfort and frankly, some of that fear that, that strikes me about the future. When I see young people, I kind of realise that for them, it's like grown-ups have been partying for a long, long time. And who's going to have to clean up the mess in the morning? It's not them, it's, it's the children. And they have uh, some, some pretty tough decisions they're going to be, be facing. And the books, I hope, just provide a little context. They're not supposed to preach. They're not supposed to ram any message down their throats, but hopefully may open some empathy for the plight of less fortunate children in other times and places. And also just make them feel... I think the, the pandemic showed us that we're not isolated, that what happens here is linked, however much might want, want it to be, to other areas in the world. That decisions taken on the other far side of the planet resonate all around everywhere. So we are all in it together. And these books were an attempt to show children that. I want to talk a little bit more about that when we talk about Stitched Up and how you position the reader uh, because you are talking very directly in a way, or your your protagonist is talking very directly to a reader. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we get there, I just want to push that idea that you've mentioned about not preaching, because they are good stories, they work as stories, but you do have a view. And I do believe that you want readers to come away with a perspective. So I take the point that you're not lecturing 
but it's not anything goes either, is it really? It depends what someone wants to take away from it. I personally don't think you can read the book and not feel a certain sympathy with the main characters and the life they're forced to endure um, or the circumstances they find themselves caught up in. And so the trick with it is, I think, is that I want to present a good story first and foremost using an issue as the backdrop. Um, So it's not just the geography of the place, it's the issues facing that place that the child is embroiled in. Like it or not, we're all kind of caught up in this. And I think for children in this country, that's quite an eye-opener. I think that for some of the the teachers and parents who get the book, it's something of an eye-opener too. And so, yes, in the back of the book, I think it's fairly, my manifesto is fairly evident. But equally, there are no easy answers. Change has to come from above. And uh, we have to um, try and exert some influence on Mm. the the harbingers of change in order to make that happen. Take us into the story of Tim Boy. I think Tim Boy was the first one of the four. It was. Tim Boy was an an idea that I'd had um, lurking in my mind ever since some years ago. I wrote a book called uh, Invisible Ink, which was one of my funny books, where modern day boy meets um, a lady Victorian inventor, a French medieval knight called Sigui Diop, and his pony Maloney, um, having to uh, face up against a, an evil wizard who wanted to um, bring about the uh, destruction of the world um, through fantastical means, rather than through um, polluting it to death or something similar. And because the, uh, the main characters, the protagonists, were sort of invisible, hence invisible ink, as in incorporated, rather than the stuff you write with, I needed them to be able to communicate with something. I was looking for a medium they could use. And I thought, I think I was swigging from a, from a can of soft drink. Um, it made my voice resonate oddly. And I thought maybe they could use metal to communicate with. And I started looking into um, likely metals and found out, because I wanted them to be able to use a, a mobile phone without being able to press the buttons by using the internal workings of the phone. And I looked to see what metals were used inside a mobile phone. And tin is used in the solder inside the circuit boards. And uh, so a lot of tin goes into the gadgets that we use. And that just led me on to reading about how the tin arrives in the supply chain. And I was quite shocked by what what happens and the effect both social and ecological it's had on, on, uh, on these places. Like Indonesia, some beautiful places have ended up scarred wastelands as a result of the tin mining. It's dredged out at sea. It's combines tearing up the land and when the big combines move out um, then all the scavengers move in the uh, the poorer families who um, will earn a little more money than they would working in a factory or as carpenters or as fisher folk they need to try and sort of gather some of this tin ore to sell and because they can't be sending their kids to school while they're out doing this the children then become a part of of the scavenging and it's not safe because the the, the sites are not effectively propped they're not safety proofed in any way so quite often there are landslides coming in that move so fast you can be maimed or killed very quickly and there's child mortality as a result of that so it made me think how is this allowed (laughs) Uh, by these uh, by these huge corporations and they're they're all of course striving for the lowest possible price for the uh, raw materials and because it's a supply chain with many many steps 
Um, there are always people looking to uh, drive down the price right way down to the very bottom. Um, this is something that turns up in them. Um, stitched up as well of course and then welcome to trash down to a degree so i think it was it was finding that it I mean, the idea of a child being um you know digging under the under the sea because you know there's lots of stuff online which shows you these rather pitiful sights of children trying to wear you know wetsuits but they're you know they're in bits they're old they're falling apart using very primitive breathing apparatus um from old generators pumping down filthy air it's it makes you quite angry and mm. i was imagining a child down there being um you know, buried alive in, in a moment how awful that would be and i had this image of them being dragged out with their hands clasped around this stone a kind of an odd almost glowing stone and the idea being a child hoping this was some sort of superhero origin story that this stone actually kept them safe um whereas in fact it could just be a piece of polished glass from the, uh, the bottom of the ocean that ended up in his hand. What would people think? What would the reaction be? Uh, and by pursuing the idea of, um, of this boy being able to uh, sell his presence at a mining site as a kind of a charm against accidents, there seems something slightly pathetic, but all too plausible about it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was where the idea of Tim Boy came from. Originally, it was a darker story and um, it would have ended less less happily than it does. I know some people argue it doesn't end very happily, but it would have ended rather more terminally for, for Paul Turner, the, um, the tin boy. But being mindful of the darkness, I found myself, I was unable to write that. But um, it was the idea that I'd, uh, I'd, you know, Barrington Stoke had very kindly asked me to pitch an idea. I'd already done um, two books for them, Mind Writer and Senseless. And just in a paragraph, I pitched Tin Boy. And about half an hour later, the big editor there came back and said, yes, we'd like to do this. So it was the fastest pitch. There was no writing sample involved. There was no acquisition meeting. It was just, yes, we want to do this. Um, can you please write it for us? So that was hugely empowering. Mm. It was very well received, very popular. Uh, teachers picked it up really quickly, I think. Mm. Uh, and it was followed by World Burned Down. Right. which is a slightly different theme, not so much about commodities, but it is another social justice story. It is. It's, that, that distinction you make is important because that's the reason that World Burned Down isn't told in the first person, like, uh, unlike the other three. Um, so it's, it's slightly, <laughs> slightly different in that it's a third person because the, for me, the Amazon rainforest fires were so terrifying and, and disturbing I felt it needed to be a narrator outside of mm. uh, of Carlos I wanted it to be more a kind of a universal thing to show that he is caught up in events that threaten his life but we all are caught up in those events through no fault of our own and it is distressing to have to challenge them because we feel powerless and we feel small um, and so for me, it was really a kind of a reasoning out the stance I wanted to take, which was that we have to become fighters in this. We can't keep turning off the news or looking at a, a nice little video of a kitten being cute instead because it, it soothes the nerves. So, again, it, it's not making any grand claim for World Burned Down. It's just wanting to tell an exciting story against that backdrop and how that backdrop has influenced the dangers that, that Carlos finds himself in. And I, you know, I, I showed it to a friend of, of mine who said, well, all Carlos does is run. He's not driving the plot at all. 
he's running from it. And I said, yeah, well, that's exactly it. Because none of us are driving this plot. The none fire. Of us are, yeah. The fire, the fire is driving fire. the plot. Exactly. Because nothing in the rainforest has prepared it for fire. It is purely a human intervention. Um, none of us are able to own this narrative uh, enough. None of us are able to do anything other than run. So that is exactly why Carlos is, is, is caught up in it. Is, it's one of those issues that we are all trapped in. And in a way, the fates of our children's children are being decided right now. Interesting, uh, because since you wrote that, um, and it was published in 2020, I'm guessing you wrote it possibly in 2019. I don't know how quickly yeah. Farrington Stoke get their books out. Uh, but since you wrote that in the last three years, the increase in those fires, not only in the Amazon, but in Australia, the bushfires, in California. California yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Cornelia Funke was in the reading corner a few months ago, and of course she lost her house um, and had to move to Italy as a result of the Californian fires. So they're increasing and they're widespread. Mm, this is this is it. It's it's not even yet. Yeah, it's not just happening a long way away in a place that we can't own because we can't understand the size of the rainforest because it is truly vast. At the same time, we can't understand the amount of destruction that's happening as well. But when you can see it from space, that becomes disturbing, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think it's you know, just very, very basic uh, education. Because I realised that I wasn't really aware of, of what was driving some of this deforestation. So for me, it was a, a case of wanting to educate myself and, and pass on some of that, some of my findings mm -hmm. uh, to a younger audience so they wouldn't grow up as ignorant as I was. So by this time, two books in, are you thinking about writing not a series, but a collection of books that somehow sit alongside each other? Um, so Welcome to Trashland being the next. And a title that has a lot, well, it's an ironic title. <laughs> yes, it is. Originally, it was, uh, I think, just going to be called Trashland. But uh, Welcome to Trashland. And you are welcome to it. You know, it's, it's yes, it's got that. That little extra sense. Um, it's like the uh, the book is introducing itself uh, in a way. Again, wanting to make itself known. Um, and yes, an ironic title because uh, it's it's not the most welcoming of places. But in a way, the um, the recycling that is done in places like Ebbubloshi um, and other areas of hardcore recycling, right down and dirty, where you know the stuff has to happen. We're disowning it. We're, we're burying our rubbish in other people's countries. The full details are yet to emerge, but, mm -hmm. but I'm sure they will. And I think it's it's fair to say that we we can't rely on people washing up their tins and meals for one plastic trays and accept the world to be saved. Um, there's you know more more has to be done. Tell um, us briefly about the story of Welcome to Trashland. Yeah, Welcome to Trashland is all about uh, Theo, who's very young, he's about uh, 12 or 13, who found himself at this dump. It, it covers a few square miles in uh, Africa, <clears throat> in Ghana, and it's where a lot of secondhand electronics end up, from refrigerators, washing machines, computer terminals, stereos, AirPods, phones, they're all there. This is where they end up getting 
recycled the hard way. People burning the uh, the plastic insulation from copper wires to, to get the copper, which they can sell on. People essentially chemically breaking down mobile phones to get to the precious metals inside, which of course gives off poisonous smokes and fumes. Um, there's a food market in Nagabaloshi as well. Um, obviously that food then gets sold all around the, uh, the city, um, but it's growing out of polluted soil and there are high, dangerously high levels of contaminants within that food. Um, so it's a, it's a clear example of, of how um, pollution can affect a population. But that's just going on in the background. This is a story of a treasure hunt really between uh, Theo and this new boy that arrives at the dam called Emmanuel, who uh, has a map he thinks that will lead him to some treasure that his brother hid there in Trashland. Um, and they have to find a way to get to it and it's a dangerous place, the dump, of course. It's, it's unpoliced. It's managed fairly brutally with hundreds of children scavenging about for enough metal they can sell to the guy who will then sell it on to the wholesaler who will then sell it on to a smelter or turn on, you know, so on throughout the process. Um, so it's about these people trapped in circumstances that aren't ideal but wanting to better themselves. And I think that we can all relate to those situations where we are, wherever we are. There's that desire to dream big and to have a chance that your dreams come true. Um, and through the book, in fact, they do, not perhaps in entirely the ways that they would hope, but uh, Emmanuel and Theo and Gifty, who's a uh, mm. child teacher, they all find their worlds changed by what's going on. So again, it's wanting to tell a story with a backdrop more meaningful than you know what's happening in the next town or the next city or in a made up space place. So it's interesting because in Tin Boy, you talk a little bit about a sort of fan, not fantasy element, but a magical element in the story. And World Burned Down is very much a thriller. And Welcome to Trashland, uh, you've got a bit of an adventure going on within that story. When we come to Stitched In, it just feels incredibly realistic throughout. It's, it's like there isn't that element other than an escape attempt. <laughs> Yes, it's it's kind of a, it's essentially a kind of a cold it's type situation, really, except with uh, with children in a modern day sweatshop in Vietnam. Um, so yeah, stitched up. I don't know. I don't know if it's perhaps the hardest hitting because the uh, they all have hostile environments. These these books, but everything takes place in the same hostile environment in Stitched Up. You, you know, the the children live, if you can call it living. They endure there, they work, they sleep, they eat. Their prisoners are allowed to kind of traipse around the exercise yard in the evening. And of course, like any prisoners, they, they dream of escape. And the difference between Stitched Up and the other three is that the protagonists have been actively sold a dream maliciously that can't come true. Um, and it's how they respond to that. The others are caught up in circumstances because of their circumstances. Theo is dropped off at Trashland by his father, then disappears and leaves him there. Carlos is kidnapped. Tono is uh, having to uh, work to help his uncle when his father's been killed in a uh, landslide. But in Stitched Up, people have come together to basically trick the parents of these children and uh, take them away to an unpleasant place. So I think that's perhaps why the fantasy element didn't seem so appropriate. There are, um, you know, because it's set in Vietnam, I didn't just, I didn't want to feel like I was appropriating anything, but equally, 
I wanted to uh, to illustrate that you know it's a story that can take place anywhere. We know there are sweatshops in Leicester, for mm. example, yeah. um, that have been in the news. These things, you know, and in India and in uh, America, mm. uh, these things are happening. So, but I think it's important for children to realise that the clothes they're getting where they live may have had an origin they weren't aware of somewhere far off. And it's just as with all the other books to, to consider their own lives and the luck and freedoms that they have and then to consider how it is for sometimes for other people mm. not in a not in a serious and and you know not in a seriously downbeat oppressive way I hope but a way of telling a story and then realizing oh god actually this this could be happening to people maybe I want to um, be involved involved in affecting some change in this situation. It did seem to me that the voice in this one Han the uh, protagonist is very aware of the reader, if you like. She seems to be addressing them directly. Maybe you do this in your country. Have you thought about this? Was that more so in this book than the others? Yes, I think I think there are moments in Trashland where Theo starts talking to the reader directly. <laughs> it's probably related to my own sense of anger of, uh, of some of the issues that um, make me want to not beat about the bush so much, perhaps. But also just, I think that if, having watched some of the videos of the survivors of, of situations like this, you know, they're committed to um, making things different for other children uh, or reminding some children that things are different in other places. Mm-hmm. So I think it felt, it felt true to Han, who is a survivor of this situation, that she would address the people and, inform them of what has happened. The fact that I hope that it's a compelling and exciting story as well. It helps, I think. And it is, you know, it is a good, you are on the edge of your seat, hoping that these girls who work together to try and effect an escape and you're not sure whether it's going to work, whether it will, whether it won't, is help going to come? So you are on the edge of your seat through uh, reading this story. I think the thing that really gets me, and ever since reading this book, every time I've seen somebody with deliberately distressed jeans on, I say to my husband, surely this has got to die out as a fashion soon, because that's what this this factory does, you know. It sandblasts the jeans, it gets the tears in there. And how stupid does that seem to us? Yeah, I think Han has a comment saying, when did this become a thing? We take this this love, this perfectly good material and we make it, we ruin it. We, we put holes in it. We put, <laughs> we make it look old and worn so we can sell it for more money. It's an interesting thing. And, you know, I feel I, feel I should add that there are many reputable uh, textiles manufacturers who do the sound blasting and different, they don't do the sound blasting, they do the distressing you know, either with lasers uh, or in ways that don't don't pollute but of course for the cheap fashions the fast fashions where there is less and less accountability the further you follow the supply chain down because the uh, big retail houses are looking for the cheapest price all the way down there are people squeezing their suppliers to the point where the reputable manufacturers can no longer afford to make the product to that specification and that's when they turn to the factories employing the slave labour. Mm. That's when they turn to the places that are using harmful measures to, uh, to achieve results. 
Han, uh, the name means uh, right thinking. And um, all the way through, I, I could hear her voice quite clearly. Um, and she's concerned about other people in factories and always wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. She knows that there were masks in the sweatshop which were meant to protect them slightly from the levels of silica in the air. But then there was an inspection at another factory, so the masks were taken away to give to them, and they never came back, those masks. They've been working without them ever since. But she's saying, well, you know, I hope that, that the children wearing them are okay, because maybe things are even worse for them. And that kind of sense of social justice, um, yeah, I just found it quite moving as I was, as writing through it. You know, these kids don't deserve what's, um, what's happened to them. Are there any more books in this vein to come? I don't know. I think I don't want to make it feel like I'm trying to uh, profit out of suffering. I already refer to these as my misery memoirs because I'm aware that they're a little, uh, little different from my, my stuff. Um, I don't want to kind of invent reasons to explore uh, certain situations. I feel that I've, I've covered four distinct areas that are uh, big ones. The, the fashion industry is, is, is driving huge amounts of, of planetary harm. Um, through overproduction and wasteful production. Um, so I don't want to start repeating myself or just trying to um, exploit those situations. I'd rather draw people's attention through it through a good story. But, you know, when a situation comes up and I think of a good enough story to tell against that backdrop, then yes, chances are I will, I will pitch it because I want to um, yeah, explore it myself and, uh, and take readers along uh, for the ride. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Steve, and uh, I look forward to hearing what the next project, whatever that will be. <laughs> um, maybe we'll get the chance to chat again uh, about that. So thank you for joining me today. Always a pleasure, Nikki. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.